It's a funny place to be, stuck in a seemingly mundane world with an inner knowing that the universe is so much more than our mortal minds can comprehend. Yet we all have the capacity to know peace and our oneness with the wholeness of life. And through these interviews, discussions, and reflections, it is my intention to share this possibility. I'm Ryan Kurzak, and this is the Kriya Yoga Podcast. Three, two, one. All right, welcome back, everybody. I'm here uh, on the Kriya Yoga podcast with a good friend of mine, Vishnu Das, who is an Ayurvedic doctor-level member of the National Ayurvedic Medical Association. He's also served on the board of NAMA. Um, Vishnu is the owner and director of Blue Lotus Ayurveda in Asheville, North Carolina, and also the lead instructor and Dean of an Ayurvedic Wellness Counselor Program in Asheville. And he's also an author uh, of a book called Vishnu's Kitchen, which I will put a link in the uh, notes of this podcast for you to find. And he also has an herbology book, which for some reason I didn't know about. Tell East, me about it. East and West. East and West. Ayurvedic Herbology East and West. So okay. It's a practical guide to Ayurvedic herbal medicine. When did that happen? Did I miss that? Oh, it, it's it's been out for... I think like six or seven years now then through Lotus Press. Wow, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. <laughs> well, good. So we'll put uh, we'll put these books in the uh, the comments or in the um, the section down below for information. You can find those. And the reason we're here with Vishnu today, um, Vishnu had a relationship with uh, Roy Eugene Davis, which is my Kriya Yoga meditation teacher. And as I was talking to Vishnu a few weeks ago, he also mentioned that the tradition that he comes from also has a strong emphasis on Kriya Yoga, and so we consider him also a lifelong Kriya Yoga practitioner. Um, so before we get into all that, I want to say thanks for being here, Vishnu. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, you know, you have been involved in Ayurveda and spirituality for a long time, and you mentioned to me that um, you know, your teacher also had a strong grounding in Kriya Yoga. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind just telling me who your teacher was, what that grounding is, and what sure. you wanted to tell me previously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I think this is uh, relevant to, the, to this conversation on Kriya Yoga uh, because before I met my spiritual teacher, Baba Haridas, um, I was... Uh, recently like newly acquainted to yoga and had read uh, a few kind of um, you know just standard reads Mm -hmm. like autobiography of a yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda and play play of consciousness by Muktananda so those were two books that I had torn through throughout the summer uh, that I had met Baba Haridas Mm -hmm. so I remembered being at Lama Foundation in um, New Mexico I was spending a few weeks there, and I was finishing reading Autobiography of a Yogi, and there was somewhere in the book, uh, I forget where, where Yogananda had had alluded to praying to Haryakan, or Mahavatar Babaji mm-hmm. um, if you, you were an aspirant and you were wanting guidance and spiritual teacher. There were, and so I, I at least I got that message from, from the book. Mm-hmm. And so I started you know, praying internally for a teacher. And within a short period of time, I wound up at, uh, at a Hanuman temple in Taos that's associated with Neem Karoli Baba. And, and, uh, and I was spending a couple weeks there. And during that time, I met somebody who was instrumental at 
taking me further into Colorado that summer where I met uh, who is now one of my closest friends, Ram Priyadas, and uh, he introduced me to um, Baba Hari Das, told me where he lived, and I wound up within about two to three weeks or so from being at Lama Foundation, really praying for a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, at the feet of Baba Hari Das in Santa Cruz, Cal- actually Watsonville, California, at the Mount Madonna Center. And um, I still had really no uh, understanding that there was some sort of connection on some level between my winding up with Baba Haridas and my desire to learn Kriya Yoga. Because in, in the autobiography of a yogi, there's so much mention of Kriya Yoga. But for some reason, I never thought of just looking at the back of the book and calling the Self-Realization <laughs> Fellowship in California. No offense to SRF. Right. I just had no clue. It was, yeah. it was off my radar. <clears throat> that page was blanked out <laughs> of my consciousness. So I wound up at Baba Haridas's and um, within a short period of time of being there, realized that after a few months of earnest practice of an introductory level uh, class that was held on Saturday morning and maintaining that practice on your own daily for three months, mm-hmm. that Baba Haridas would initiate students in mm-hmm. Kriya Yoga. And so I was excited. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know um, anything about Kriya Yoga at the time, its relationship and connection with the Ashtanga Yoga system or the, you know, what Baba Hari Das's uh, main teachings were, which was Ashtanga Yoga and Bhagavad Gita and Yoga Sutras. So um, at the time, I was philosophically very new at all of this, so I just did everything I was told, the, the, the practical method of Kriya Yoga at, in an introductory way. And then eventually being introduced to the first level practice of Kriya Yoga and after three months. And over the next, uh, you know, the next decade from there, uh, had increased my practice of Kriya Yoga through the various levels that he, he taught and initiated in. The practices were held secret and still are. Uh, they're not talked about uh, publicly at Mount Madonna. People don't even mention Kriya Yoga unless you're a student and you've been there for a while. I mention it because I'm, I, I don't talk about the details of the practice, right. but um, but I mention it because uh, Baba Haridas has passed away about a year and a half ago, and when people express desires to learn Kriya Yoga, I usually refer them to either um, Roy Eugene Davis's tradition and in CSA down in North Georgia, um, and now I can also um, send them your way, as well as uh, for the folks in California, if they if it's convenient for them to go to Mount Madonna Center or to their in-town center in Santa Cruz, the Pacific Cultural Center, and uh, in, in get introduced to that those teachings. Right. Um, but what uh, you know, getting back to the Kriya Yoga aspect, I I would eventually. Uh, asked Baba Haridas about the origins of his practice if it had, and if it had any connection to Mahavatar Babaji. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Baba Haridas wrote a book called um, Hariyakan Baba, Known and Unknown. And Hariyakan Baba, to be clear, is not the Hariyakan Baba that was alive in, in Haldwani area of the Kamon region of India. Um, in the recent past. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hariyakan Baba that's known throughout that region was last seen 
physically in the villages working amongst people in like the early 1930s. And Baba Haridas grew up in this area and all young aspirants of yoga were into Haryakam Baba, you know, or they'd call him Haryakam Baba or various other regional names and there, there was pictures taken of him and so on. But after that, he had been seen in villages. The last time he was seen, uh, I mean, in visions, mm-hmm. people's own personal visions. Okay. And Baba Haridas had several experiences where he was renovating small little roadside temples and, and uh, little mandirs that you'd have, like little temple, temples on the roadside that pe- pilgrims would stop. And people, uh, you know, older men would come up and ask him, uh, or tell him that this was built by Harakam Baba. Mm-hmm. And, it, it, you know, so that, that had happened several times where he had connections with renovate or, or restoring these old mandirs that were uh, evidently uh, first built by Harakam Baba, right. um, who, who was thought to be Mahavatar Babaji. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then once Baba Haridas had his own, you know, vision, or or uh, Harik and Baba had manifested Baba Haridas when he was sitting in a cave and meditating, he was tired and he had fallen over close to a fire that he had lit, and Harik and Baba had come to him and lifted him up out of that, you know, out of danger. And then he, as he looked at Harik and Baba walking out of that cave, he saw some light coming from his back, and when he left the cave to see him, he was gone. Mm. So. Baba Haridas doesn't talk about that kind of stuff much at all. So he had mentioned that in the book and that there was somehow some sort of internal relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I asked him about the origins of his Kriya Yoga, he said that there's many Kriyas, hundreds of Kriyas within the Raja Yoga scriptures mm-hmm. and that these are, you know, uh, select teachings of Kriya Yoga that he's, he developed. Okay, right. so this is uh, Baba Haridas's Yoga, um, Kriya Yoga, methods were uh, selected from the Raj Yoga scriptures specifically by him for his students. So there, it wasn't a, a lineage that was passed down from the Yogananda tradition. Okay. So with, well, I mean, in the Yoga Sutras, chapter 2 is called Kriya Yoga. Mm-hmm. And weren't you telling me about a book uh, that um, your teacher <coughs> wrote that was specifically on that chapter? Yeah, well... Um, Baba Haridas has written on all, extensively on all the books of the Yoga Sutras, and I believe they're all published now. Okay. The second book of the Yoga Sutras mm-hmm. um, is the, you know, the, sad, the um, uh, Sadhanapada. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that, and, and there's a, a good introduction to Kriya Yoga in the Sadhanapada. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then that Sadhanapada gets into that, you know, breaking down the relationship with Kriya Yoga and Ashtanga Yoga and so on. So it, it's, a, it's a great book. Right. Um, you know. Let's, we'll dig back into that in a minute. Um, let's kind of <coughs> maybe go, I think it's in the future for you, uh, um, from your past. Uh, when you met Roy Davis, mm-hmm. what, what made you, how did you meet Roy? What brought that about? Okay. You, uh, and I, I, I want to say right off the bat that I do consider Roy one of my mentors uh, and one, one of my teachers. Uh, more and more so, especially after he left his body. Like, I, I, I would, Baba Hari Das and Roy passed away both within about a year of each other. Mm-hmm. And, um, I've always felt that Roy was a bit of a gift for me, uh, to put it lightly, because I moved from the West Coast 
to Albuquerque. Um, you know, I, well, I moved from living out west for a good chunk of my early adult life mm-hmm. to Asheville, North Carolina, when I was about 29 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was separated physically from my spiritual family of California. And within, a, within about a, two years or so, I was hosting uh, cooking classes at my home in Weaverville. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, um, one, one of the students that attended that, that cooking class was uh, Willie Davis, Roy's wife. Oh, really? And so <laughs> I didn't know this, but towards the end of our cooking class, Willie, being the humble servant she is, really doesn't name drop or mention anything. She's quiet and really reserved, but she was a great student and she wrote down diligent notes and <clears throat> was helping cook and I could tell that she really was in, engaged in the class. And so at the end of class, she just came up to me and said, you know, um, my husband is a Kriya Yoga teacher in uh, in, in Lake Mont, Georgia. And uh, I'm just curious if you'd be interested at some point coming down and teaching Ayurveda for our summer, for our retreats that we do on Kriya Yoga. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was thrilled uh, for to be invited. And when she said Roy Eugene Davis, I lit up because in 1996, I was living in Southern Oregon and I came across a a spiritual group. And I forget the person who hosted the group at the time, Um, but what 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 his name was. But uh, there was a reading in uh, there there was a a reading and and also a little bit of chanting in the Yogananda style of chanting with a harmonium, real simple kind of. Uh, hymns and meditation but I remembered hearing the reading and it was it was just in plain English it wasn't in, you know everything wasn't couched and embedded within Sanskrit but it was just so um, so rich mm-hmm. and I remembered asking the man who wrote this and he, he said Roy Eugene Davis and mm-hmm. I remembered he showed me a picture of Roy in a suit and tie and I'm like this, this guy's interesting. And so years later, one of my good friends at the Ayurvedic Institute, Wynn Warner, when I was at his house, I noticed he had a bunch of tr- truth journals with Roy Eugene Davis. And, and in talking with Wynn, realized that he knew Roy back in California in the real old days. Mm-hmm. I think maybe even pre-CSA. Right. <clears throat> so uh, when I met Roy... Well, before you do oh, that, yeah. about what year did you meet Willie? Uh, this was, let's say, it was but within two, around 2002 or three. Okay. to about 2005. So I actually think it was a closer to around 2005 because I think that was the first time that, and I, I, the dates could be wrong there, but it's pretty close to that right. when I first wound up at CSA. Okay, I was trying to figure out how... How much your your uh, teaching influenced her her cooking at the retreat centers from that point forward? Well, you know, <laughs> Willie's a good cook, she no matter is. what. And, yeah. and and at the time, she was you know exploring some of the culinary arts of Ayurveda and the you know the use of spices and mm-hmm. and going down to the center. I noticed a lot of those spices on her shelf, and right. I'd sat and eaten several lunches with Roy, Willie, and Kathleen and the gang over there, and and. Uh, and, you know, she'd make kitchery or dal or things like that. So, yeah, I think that there was, you know, I, I would like to think that there was something that she t- she took from that. Yes. Yeah. Good. And so when you met Roy, what was Well, you know, when I met Roy, um, I would say 
it, it was interesting how all of that went about. I mean, there, there's a there's a lot of stories to it. I'll keep it keep it simple for now. It doesn't have to be too yeah. simple. <clears throat> when, when I met when I met Roy, um, I had an interesting experience because I would be teaching there for three days. Each day for a few hours, I'd come in in the afternoon and teach a segment on Ayurveda to to the students, and uh, I I. Each year that I would go back, or for each retreat, I started to notice a certain feeling within me that would last sometimes several days or a week or two even, where there was this... It was very similar to when I would go and spend time with Baba Haridas. And especially during retreats when Baba Haridas came to Mount Madonna to spend four days there, because he lived close by, he didn't live on the center. And whenever I'd be in, in, in Baba Haridas's presence for three, four days during a retreat, I would go home with that feeling of just kind of being in the world, but not of it. You know, just, you know, everything would just kind of roll off my back and I, I felt great. Mm-hmm. And, and I, had sp- I had spent some time around some other spiritual teachers and at their ashrams here or in India and... Baba Haridas had that unique effect that other teachers hadn't had on me. Just, I guess it was just my own personal relationship with him, my own devotion to the path and his path. But when I met Roy, I wasn't a part of the tradition. Um, I would just be in his presence, meditate with him for a half hour, listen to him speak for a little while before breakfast. And it was casual. And, and, and my relationship with him was always very casual because I, I wasn't his student so I didn't have that shyness that maybe I would have had if he was my guru. Right. And so our relationship was, um, was just um, very low-key. Mm-hmm. But when I would leave, I would have that same feeling I'd had leaving Mount Madonna and leaving Baba Haridas's presence. And, and, I, and so I, I noticed that Roy was a bit of a touchstone for me. Every time I would go down, I would, I, I would feel more inspiration to practice. Mm-hmm. And that continued for several years that way, and it got stronger and stronger. Mm-hmm. And and you know, I was initiated in Kriya Yoga in 1992, and <clears throat> with Baba Haridas, and had practiced his practices diligently for years. Um, but when I met Roy, and after about I would say maybe three yoga retreats there, uh, Kriya Yoga initiation retreats. I, there was always a standing offer for me to stay for that Thursday initiation day. Mm-hmm. I think it was like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday do the initiation. Mm-hmm. And um, I would decline politely. And I, I, I think it was, the, it was one of the last retreats that I taught for. I emailed Roy, and I had asked him if I could take the initiation. And I, I told them, I'm not looking for a guru. I'm not, you know, in the, in the market for a guru. But, I, that, but that I respected him as a guru. And, uh, but my reason for taking the initiation was that Baba Haridasa's kriyas were so complex. And I'll just put it at that. I mean, unless you're living a life where you have the leisure to spend two hours doing practice every morning, just sitting, doing pranayama meditation, it was hard to maintain it. And, of course, Baba Haridas always taught, well, you could do parts of it. You could do it incrementally. But I found that after the many years of doing that practice, that 
it was almost more distracting to me to try to do it all, right. even to cut it short. And Roy's practice, because it wasn't as secretive as Baba Haridas's, I knew what the practice was before I was initiated into it. Um, and I'm like, I want something simple mm-hmm. from somebody that I feel is some way connected. Mm-hmm. And I felt that internal connection between Baba Haridas and Roy. Um, and Roy always had a real deep uh, appreciation for Baba Haridas. He would ask about him. And so uh, Roy was thrilled. He was like, yes, absolutely, come, take the initiation. So I stayed for that Thursday. Um, and I remembered walking into the main hall. And right before I walked into the main hall, Roy was out, out standing outside, outside the door in the, in the dining hall, greeting people as they walked in. <clears throat> and the first thing that he asked me was, how is your guru? How is Baba Haridas? Mm-hmm. Uh, I've heard he's not been feeling well. Mm-hmm. And at that point, Baba Haridas had had some health struggles. And I was touched that he asked, you know, and, um, and so we talked briefly. And then I went into the main hall and um, I remembered um, at one point he was asking everybody to write down, you know, some tendencies that you're wanting to surrender, to right. give up, to the burn, brain bowl, yeah. to burn. Mm-hmm. In, in the in the chi, chi, his chi, chimney homa I call it you know uh, out on the porch so I wrote down something and as I was writing writing you know what I wanted to offer to the fire <coughs> Roy just looked across the room and he was collecting the envelopes at that point he was up front and he just looked back at me and he winked <laughs> at me and he, he wasn't winking at the person behind me. He, he, he winked right at me. And when he winked at me, I would say that was probably the first time in my life that I had experienced what someone would call Shaktipat. Now, I had taken traditional Shaktipat with my former wife's um, teacher, and I had a lot of respect for them and everything. But, I, you know, it wasn't this mind-blowing and heart-opening experience. Not that it, Shaktipat has to be, right. you know. I understand it enough to know that it doesn't come with all the bells and whistles people think it may have. But with Roy's wink, <clears throat> I considered it the guru's glance, you know. I was always like, I wish I knew what it was like to get Ramana Maharshi's glance. Uh, yes. <laughs> but <laughs> Roy gave me that glance. And it was the same glance that Ramana would have given somebody. And I think even more potent because I knew Roy at that point and, um, you know, well enough. And uh, I, I, I trusted Roy, partly because he was just a no BS teacher like Baba Haridas. Right. He wasn't one to say, I'll take your karma. I'll do the job for you. Just surrender to me. Right. Give no, me all your money. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I can appreciate deep guru devotion and guru yoga, but Baba Haridas was more, you know, the practical method like Roy. <clears throat> so that being said, I left that day and I don't think I had anything other than just, I don't want to say a pure thought, but it seemed like my mind was placid, spacious, and quite empty. I remembered um, one of his one man who was at, there at the center at the time was um, Nirvanananda, mm-hmm. and Nirvanananda gave me several of his CDs and some, you know, some of his music downloaded on a little MP3, a little zip drive. And uh, on the way home, I was listening to Nirvanananda and just thinking about you know, contemplating my experience with Roy. And because the moment he winked, I just felt like I wanted to cry. I felt my heart open, but you know, I was able to hold it together, but I, I felt 
at peace at that moment. And it, and it lasted throughout the day till I came back to, to Asheville. And I remembered getting back that night to, where I, uh, to my clinic where I was living at the time. And I sat in the back room. The first thing I wanted to do, I just put my bags down and I just meditated and mm-hmm. did the Kriya. And again, just felt a, a very close union with God, with Roy, and with the path. And so ever since then, I would considered Roy and all of the students, my guru brothers and sisters around Roy, his family, Ron Lindon at the center. It just I felt like they've been just an extended family, you know, mm-hmm. uh, no different than any other uh, any of my satsang out in California. Just that real close connection. So they were kind of like my spiritual home away from home, and uh, still have served the, uh, uh, as that to me. Right. I still I still visit um, people connected to the center. Have developed connections and friendships with you, with Ryan Strong, and others. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, just been a real blessing. So you mentioned, you know, it was wonderful to hear that description, you know, the experience mm-hmm. and the experiences that you had, um, with Baba Hari Das, and you mentioned imagining what it would be like to have that kind of look from Ramana Maharshi. <coughs> yeah. And so I, I'm taking that you're maybe one of those people that has the sense that this teaching or this spirit or this process can really come through any it's it's not necessarily just simply the property of one organization or one teacher it's, yeah. it's like a yeah. universal thing yeah yeah and so you yeah so you had a similar experience between <coughs> your teacher and your um when you think about you know what you learned, um, we'll start with Baba Hari Das and Roy again. Yeah. Uh, when you think about you know, some of the most important lessons you learned in your study with Baba Hari Das, you know, what comes to mind? What, what was some of the most important transformational uh, lessons you got from him? I think the first lesson that I learned from Baba Hari Das was discipline. Mm. <clears throat> and it wasn't it wasn't discipline with an iron rod, you know. Um, Baba Hari Das was what I'd consider kind of a benevolent guru, in, in the sense that you know he, there was really not a lot. There was no force. Um, there there wasn't even a, a kind of um, there was there there was something alluring about him, just about his presence. Mm-hmm. But he didn't go out of his way to pull you in as a student. It was very much a self-led experience. And I, I felt magnetically drawn to him immediately, and I knew I wanted, I knew I wanted him to be my teacher. <clears throat> but I was a latchkey kid, um, especially from the time I was 12 onward. So literally? Yeah. Okay. And so, you know, I lived with my father, who at the time was kind of, wild and and uh so i spent a lot of my time you know as a latchkey kid really just kind of taking care of myself Mm -hmm. and 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 that had some that had some benefits and some drawbacks the benefits were that i was free to you know he was agnostic and and i i had the freedom to think about what i wanted to be spiritually so i dropped out of uh, you know, Catholic Sunday school before I was confirmed, and uh, and and I, I, you know, over the years, you know, when I, in my late teens and twenties, exploring spirituality, you know, I was pretty open to whatever. I had a strong interest, um, but growing up, I didn't have a lot of discipline. Mm-hmm. 
So, you know, meal times were whenever I wanted to eat, you know, and uh, often uh, I had no discipline or, you know, no curfew and, and so on. Um, and when I met Baba Haridas, I had the desire to learn, but I had, I wasn't able to sit for five minutes without fidgeting or without feeling uncomfortable. 20, I, I, I remember the first time that I meditated with him was 20 minutes, and I wanted to be in the front row, mm -hmm. right up next to him, but I couldn't sit up. So at the end, I was laying down, but I couldn't point my feet towards him. So I had my legs crossed, and I was laying down on my back. And when everybody was chanting Om, and I remembered sitting up really quick, and Baba Haridas just staring me right in my, just staring right at me, just <laughs> looking at me, and I could tell at that point that was like the first time that I felt like he was kind of instilling that desire for practice mm -hmm. and the need for discipline in me. Mm -hmm. And so, um, what I thought was going to be a very peaceful stay on the mountain, 350 acres of redwood forest, became hard work. Yeah. He, he, he made it a point by saying that Mount Madonna Center was not an ashram, it was a working community. And it wasn't one of these places where everybody's dressed in white, pranaming each other, namaste, namaste. You know, people had their own, you know, practice was done on your own mm -hmm. daily. <clears throat> if you wanted to, some people didn't practice there. They lived there and were a part of the community. Others, a lot of people did have their own practices in connected with Babaji, who we affectionately call him Babaji. Mm -hmm. And uh, and uh, during that time, I remembered, uh, I think one of my first jobs was to thin uh, some trees on a hairpin turn because there was children who lived on the land. There was a... a, a, a a school from preschool all the way up to seniors on the land so there were kids on the road and everything else so there there was a, a blind curb and we needed to cut down some redwood trees and they were second growth redwoods but this was a mature second growth forest so the trees were rather big yeah. and so cutting I, I was an environmental activist still am in my own way but back then, I wouldn't even stir my tea with a wooden tea stirrer okay and here I am given you know, uh, orders to go out with, not orders, but, uh, you know, my my first job when I was there was to go out and cut trees. A challenge to the idealism. It was a big time. <laughs> it was a hard day. And I was doing it with a big man named Mahavir, big guy, Mahavir. <clears throat> he had the chainsaw, and he had this Australian accent. And I remembered Mahavir in his own kind of casual way saying, yeah, just take that down, you know. And, and he was just kind of rough and ragged about it, you know. And, and here I am, this idealistic, you know, earth-first hippie, and uh, <clears throat> just mortified by the, by the idea of chopping down trees. And um, so that was my first task, you know. But I spent a lot of time working, whether it was moving rocks or digging dirt in the garden or working on a maintenance crew, um, you know, there was just a lot to do. So, I, you know, it was at the time we could, you know, the, the, the program there was like karma yoga program. You could work 28 hours a week, pay $60 a month, and you could live on the community room and board provided. Mm -hmm. I just had to figure out how to clothe myself, how to get my um, <clears throat> laundry money, and how to save money to go to India. Right. So my first few years at Mount Madonna were all about practice. And, and I would philosophically, it was hard for me to sit through sutra class and Gita class. I thought of myself as a bhakti yogi back then. For me, it was just being in nature and doing pranayama, meditation. I was more into the methods and the techniques and the practice than I was about 
studying scripture and sutra. Right, right. Yeah, and so I, I would often leave sutra class early to just go work in the garden and chant Ram's name kind of thing, you know. So that was that, that was in those days. I can remember at CSA one time, uh, Ellen Grace O'Brien was there teaching a yoga sutras class. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting in the back and it was halfway through and I thought to myself, yeah, I, th- I think I just want to go outside. And I remember I, mm-hmm. I left and Roy was just coming in and he says, you get back in there. <laughs> There's, 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 there was something to it that I, 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 it took a while to appreciate it. And, and, and of course, over time I became more acquainted, you know, formally with yoga philosophy. Mm -hmm. But I remembered after the first full summer and winter, Mm -hmm. spring was coming and I wrote Baba Haridas a letter. And Baba Haridas is silent. So for those of you who do not know who Baba Haridas was, he was a Moni or Moni Sadhu, which means a silent yogi. And uh, he wrote on a chalkboard. So our way of communicating often was either in private meeting, listening to him talk, or in class. But then there was also this time uh, where you could, you could just write him a letter. And he would respond within a day or two or three. Usually by the next time I saw him at Mount Madonna, which was several times a week he'd come, <clears throat> I would, uh, I would get, he'd hand me a letter. I still save all those letters, and they're great. Um, one of my one of my letters said, Baba, Babaji, I, w- I want to, um, in the mid-spring, I'd like to go to Mount Shasta for the summer and live on the mountain and practice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I want to do. I'm going to go up the mountain. I'm going to have my tent, my sleeping bag. And at the time, I had traveled all over the country. I think I'd hitchhiked across country several times since before then. And so I, I was I was free and easy wanderer at that point. And... Um, so being in one place for a year was my 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 old road dog tendencies were 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 kicking in right. <clears throat> to to wander, and so I, I, he wrote me back and he said, "You can go to the mountains to meditate, but you but the but you won't learn yoga there." Mm. Is what he said. Mm-hmm. He said, "You can go to the mountains to meditate, but you won't learn yoga there." He said, yogis go to the mountains and the crows bother them. <laughs> so that was his old, you know, the, the old Zen master type quote, uh, one couple sentence reply, you know. Right. And, um, and, and that, that, that made me stay. Uh-huh. So he didn't tell me to stay. Uh, he just that, that was, that, that was the, the, the directive, though, mm-hmm. is if you really want to learn, stay right and and I, I so i spent the summer but by that following winter i was itching to go so bad that rather than ask him or te- you know tell them what i was thinking i just wrote on a little piece of paper i'm, I'm, I'm mortified that i did this but it, i think it was an, a receipt <laughs> from something i purchased in town and i wrote a quick note saying babaji i'm leaving for several months to go to the southwest to flagstaff arizona you know to visit some friends and right. i wrote this little letter and i told my friend to give it to him I, it was i think it was during a new year's retreat or something like that mm-hmm. i literally left when it was snowing I, I i arrived in taos new mexico on a greyhound bus in a snowstorm it was just it wasn't an easy journey to get there and I think I, I, by the time that winter and spring was over, by early summer, I was back up at Mount Madonna again. Right. And that, that's kind of how it was for me. I was kind of a prodigal son. I'd, I'd arrive, I'd stay for some time, I'd leave, I'd come back and stay. Right. But all the while, Baba Haridas always encouraged me to stay, mm-hmm. to learn. And um, 
it wasn't until I find. I think I was. It was 1997. I finally told Babaji that I was going to move to Vermont, and I, at that point, I had been around him since 1992, and and I had an inner conviction. I knew it was time to go, and uh, he gave me his blessing at that point. It was the first time I think I had asked him or t- told him that I was going to go anywhere where he was just supportive of it. Right. And he says, you can go, and if you, if you don't adjust to life in the out east, then you can just come back here. Uh-huh. You know, So it wasn't like, go, see if it works out, and then wander the world. He said, go, see if it works out. If it doesn't, come back. Cool. And, and I, w- I, never, I never was ba- went back to stay. Right. That brings up, <clears throat> brings up two questions. Um, the first one deals with uh, how you mentioned that you weren't really inspired to like study like texts or scriptures or like the Yoga Sutras and so on. Yeah. But I'm assuming you eventually did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So let me try to get all this organized in my brain, then I'll, I'll mm-hmm. spit it out. Um, and then the next one deals with uh, this desire to kind of have to work through your discipline mm-hmm. and how. You know, in the beginning, it took you a while to learn to kind of sit still and meditate, mm-hmm. and how you kind of wanted to leave and wander around rather mm-hmm. than stay there and do the practice. So my first question is this. Um, to people who also have that feeling like, oh, I don't need to read the Yoga Sutras, I don't need to read the Gita, I don't need to study these things, I'm just a bhakti, what would you say to them? That's the first question. Mm-hmm. And then the second question is... Um, would you have anything to share with individuals that really do have a strong desire or or drawl to learn and practice yoga, but really feel restless inside and don't feel like they can just, you know, do what needs to be done to stay where they need to stay? Mm-hmm. Okay, so those are the yeah. two questions yeah, I yeah. have. Okay, so <coughs> the, the, speaking to the first question, um, Baba Haridasa's tradition uh, is... It is an Advaita tradition, but it's called, it, but but it's referred to as Vishista Advaita. Okay. So if you've ever, I know you've read Yoga Vishista. Yes, I have. Um, so there's a lot of practical method in there. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, the, the, you know, like the conversation between Vishista and Ram about grace versus self-effort. Mm-hmm. Right. <clears throat> so Baba Haridas would speak to both of those things. You know, the self-effort would come through the, the grace would come through the self-effort in a sense. You know. That when we could relax into the effort enough to actually learn to, you know, to to meditate effectively, and getting into the, you know, to to those moments of grace. I remember Roy once said, "You can't storm the gates of heaven." <laughs> you know, it, you you practice and practice kind of get it 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 provides a ground for that grace to happen. Mm-hmm. I like to refer to that grace as that that kind of natural inclination to let go. Which you know in the sutras would be nirodha samskara when the de- when we develop the tendency for restraint of the mind through meditation, then the nirodha samskara kicks in on its own. You can't force samadhi. Samadhi just occurs through the practice, kind of like as an organic process. Is it like the idea of, you know, for example, if you have the <coughs> self-effort to build yourself a successful business, then the grace of good finances comes from that. Yeah, or yeah. if you take care of your body as best you can, yeah. then the grace of the best health you can have comes from that. Yeah, so yeah. It's a similar like, kind of Roy's a pra- idea of effective living. You right. know, so in, in this in in this way, um, the practice of bhakti and the practice of jnana, or you know that practice of devotion and the uh, the yoga of devotion and the yoga of knowledge. Um, 
exist simultaneously. Right. And that and that's something that you, you know when we study it, we we we're saying, well, what is our inner nature, and which path should I follow? Am I a jnani or am I a bhakti? Mm-hmm. I like to think of Ramana Maharshi as a bhakti mm-hmm. towards his jnana. Mm-hmm. Do you understand? Well, he would always yeah. say that you can't once you know the self. Yeah. Then you've got the devotion. Yeah. The devotion yeah. to the practice, right. to the uh, that spiritual ideal. And um, in, in, it, at first, for me, I think that the the, the philosophy was intimidating because it was Baba Haridas's philosophy was was uh, heavily Sanskrit laden, mm-hmm. and each sutra class. Uh, or for the yoga sutras, uh, we'd go through only a handful of sutras, we'd chant them in Sanskrit, we'd talk about them in English, we'd break down each Sanskrit word, it would be heavily discussed. Right. And the same with the shlokas of the Gita. And so for me, being new to this, it, it, it was like all of this talk, in a way, was almost distracting, because, I think for mo- partly because I felt that if I didn't understand it, then I wouldn't I wouldn't, there wouldn't be any gain. So for you, it was distracting. It wasn't just laziness. No, it wasn't laziness. I was interested, but I'd follow the class to the point where I'd get frustrated. Uh And I think part of that frustration was just being new at something. Okay. You know, and then over time, hearing these terms over and over and over again in class and in just like Mm -hmm. Q&A, the the terms became uh, more familiar and and I found how they were useful to me. Um, it was it was in 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 some respects it was a way to frame what was going on in the practice and in my life in a philosophical way, rather than it being so random. Like, what is life about? Why is this happening? And like, and, and even within my practice, so it gave me a, a language. So studying, so studying those things helped put your life and the practice into context. Into context, And that was the yes. benefit. That... It was the benefit, okay. yeah. Because it wasn't just this kind of ineffable experience or, it, it, you know, or left to my own interpretation in ways that maybe sometimes back then would have been somewhat ungrounded or, right. you know. Uh, and so it provided a framework mm-hmm. for my mind. In the Kriya Yoga, I remembered saying, well, you know, if... If the technique isn't so important, because Baba Haridas used to say that yoga techniques are tricks, but they're important tricks, mm-hmm. you know, and, 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 I, and, and part of me was, you know, enticed to those tricks in a sense. I wanted to learn the techniques, mm-hmm. um, but part of me was uh, interested in the more direct experience that you'd read about when you'd read Shankara's work on, uh, you know, like Advaita mm-hmm. philosophy or non-dualism. And so my practice, I would say, started off bhakti because bhakti, at least from that kind of like uh, bhakti with form, devotion, where I was into puja and arti, like uh, worship type practices, coupled with my create yoga practice. And then slowly but surely over time, at least for myself, I found less of an inclination towards what they would call saguna bhakti or bhakti with with form mm-hmm. to more what what is referred to as nirguna bhakti. And 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 then understanding Vrishista Advaita, I was I was taken by the um, you know, how bhakti practices can be kind of a stepping stone right. towards that non-dual practice. And then when I started to study about the life of Ramana Maharshi, I understood that his some of his first exposures to South Indian devotion um, 
were really inspiring as well. And, uh, and so I started to realize that my tradition and the tradition of Baba Haridas came out of that Advaita tradition that um, I think it was Ramanujacharya who was one of the, it was the founder of that particular movement where uh, he was inspired by the devotion to Lord Vishnu in South India, um, but maintained that adherence to Advaita philosophy. So, so uh, for me, Babaji was a perfect teacher because he allowed a place for bhakti and for that jnana. And I, I, I would say that I, 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 the practice just shifted and changed within myself over time Mm -hmm. and my orientation to my practice changed and still does continue to change well i think that's an important point a lot of people miss that you mentioned the idea of uh, starting with devotion towards an object or a form Mm -hmm. and then it eventually for you uh you know move towards uh, a formless kind of devotion Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of people um they don't, when they try to imagine this formless kind of devotion, they just can't quite do it yet. And it's important to know that it's okay, if you need to, to use form, because that may eventually lead to a formless kind of devotion. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it could. And I, I remember once a bhakti came to Baba Haridas. They'd, you know, he was in the um, Gaudiya Sampradaya tradition, which was a Vaishnava tradition like ours, but worship of Lord Krishna, and their practice was what they would, would refer to themselves as blind bhakti. Like, they didn't want to consider God as non-dual. In fact, there was a little bit of rejection of that because they wanted to practice exclusive devotion to God with form. Okay. <clears throat> Once Baba Haridas was asked by one of these students um, in relation to dual or non-dual pra- um, uh, uh, realization, uh, he's, he, 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 this, this devotee was adamant that his path was, you know, pure bhakti. And so Baba Haridas wrote on his chalkboard, then get that. (laughs) And and I understand what he meant by that. He's like, rather than struggle with the idea of whether or not God is form or formless. Right. He said, just go for it. Right. Because ultimately it leads to the same place. Exactly. Like the story of Ramakrishna Paramahansa when he came out of Nirvikalpa Samadhi and his guru's like, why are you chanting Kali's name? And he said, your Brahman and my Kali are the same. Right, right. And I think that that's where it all kind of leads. I don't. I, that's why I sometimes when I hear a non-dual teachers naysaying bhakti yoga as if in some way it's not as high of a practice right. or it's a dual practice. I, I like to say... to to suggest that it really doesn't matter. It, it, for me, it became a little bit more, I wouldn't say non-dual, but it came, became more uh, formless form, mm-hmm. you know, uh, than, than uh, deity or something like that. Mm-hmm. Or even guru devotion. I, I recognize that the thought of my teachers, uh, Baba Haridas or Roy, they, they do act like that deity in right. a sense to me. They, but, but my practice isn't solely around that. And it is, I would say, more kind of internalized mm-hmm. from my, my practice. And so I, I, don't like, I don't like to look at it in a hierarchical no, sense no. As, as far as that goes. Right. I mean, you know, in Vasista Yoga, I don't have the line memorized, but mm-hmm. there's a statement there that, you know, you either treat everything as though it is yourself mm-hmm. or that nothing is you. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. if you just pick one of those and stick with it. The nothing and the everything. Yeah. <laughs> you, you get to the same yeah. place. And um, I was reading uh, Be As You Are, um, you know, referencing Ramana Maharshi, and 
uh, he essentially was saying, you just recognize that everything is one thing, consciousness. Yeah. And whether you, if you're worshiping uh, a, a statue of Kali or an idea of Kali, well, that is also consciousness. Mm-hmm. Just as if you're able to exist in a formless state, it's, it's all, as you're saying, one thing. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Baba, Babaji used to say, if you could develop devotion to a rock, then that would work. But what, 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 did he, what, did he, what did he write on the board to that person? I think that's classic. He was saying, like, get that. Yeah. Like, 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 like quit let, talking about like, yeah. it. Yeah, or, or, like, I don't think that there was anything that he could have said right. other than that to just say, you know, get that. Right. Rather than saying, yeah, your, your bhakti is going to eventually lead to a non-dual realization of Brahman. Right. Because to the bhakti, at least in that context... That wasn't the desire, right? And and to think about it that way, in a sense, might cheapen the love for Krishna, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, on another level, I don't necessarily think it does. But for that devotee, it did. Right. Well, when I heard it, yeah. when, I, when I what popped into my mind was you know someone having this uh, dialogue about you know my bhakti is pure. And he's saying, well, get that. Because if he got yeah. it, he would quit talking yeah, about yeah. it. <laughs> he would just be it. <laughs> you know, I mean, the lot, it can just get so into the semantics. I mean, I remember once, I hear this a lot when I look into kind of neo, neo-advaitin or neo-non-dual philosophy, <clears throat> is that somehow meditation is a dual practice and self-inquiry is not. Right. And I, I like to... To clarify that a little bit with people who are confused by that idea. And I think this is relevant because I do think the practice of self-inquiry, even though we may not look at it as Kriya Yoga, is a practical method. Right. Because I like to think of... Well, I have have to get something Yeah, yeah, yeah. The neo-non-dualism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like to look at the, the, the practice of self-inquiry as starting off as a dual practice because yeah. you are asking, who am I? Uh, the way that I practice self-inquiry, and that is a practice of mine, is to think of I or to at least contemplate the idea of I as presence. Mm-hmm. So in Buddhist practice, presence is a big deal. Well, that presence is the eye sense. And, uh, and, and so Ramana would frequently say that it's not just repeated. Like, you're not just saying, who am I, who am I, who am I? You really um, You are just, you are, suge- you are just leaning in to that, co- that thought of who am I, but eventually dropping into that presence. Right. And in the first, in the, the, that, that bridge between Sampragnata Samadhi with knowledge to Asampragnata Samadhi is Sasmita Samadhi. And Sasmita Samadhi is where the eye sense is isolated. Well, the practice of self-inquiry up to the point of Sasmita Samadhi is a dual practice. <laughs> and, and, and so when we think of that, we, we, can, we can tame our mind into a kind of a quiescence and a spaciousness by contemplating the idea of self-inquiry. But that is maybe not as absorbed into samadhi as sasmita samadhi. So when I, when I was talking to Baba Haridas via letter about the nature of self-inquiry, he said, 
it, he, he, I forget his exact words, but he was talking about how, how unless the mind is absorbed into the eye sense and until the meditator and the, and the object become one, then there is still a duality within the practice. And so whether or not we say I or whether or not we say Krishna or whether or not we focus on yantra or mantra, it, 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 they're all just where, what is compelling to us that we can hang the hat of our concentration on. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and so that's where I find that sometimes it's just kind of a semantical game, whether or not we meditate or whether or not we do self-inquiry. Right. You know. For some reason, the image yeah. came up in my mind of like tuning a guitar <coughs> or some kind of instrument. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're tuning it, like say you're doing, what is it, the, the fifth fret to mm-hmm. the next string. Mm-hmm. Like when you hear that like wobble, yeah. Uh, you know it's not in tune. Yeah. And then once you get in tune, it's resonating together. So it's mm-hmm. almost like the wobble is the kind of working. You're you're using the non or you're using the the, the dual dualistic experience to mm-hmm. kind of figure out well when is it actually in tune. Yeah. I don't know if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, yeah, but that yeah, came to yeah, mind. Yeah. yeah. So. <coughs> in tune, like right. right. And and you know and and, the, and a guitar will easily go out of tune. Right. And and I notice in, with meditation those moments of uh, of absorption into that space mm-hmm. seems so natural. Like oh wow. Well, well, why don't I just stay here? Right. And as soon as I think that, I'm into my thoughts again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And yeah. at first, I, when I first was practicing, I, I found that I would struggle to hold that. Uh-huh. And uh, it, it wasn't until after like a two and a half hour meditation class with Baba Haridas, we were all sitting there eating breakfast. And it, there was just that quiet moment after practice. And I was sitting there and I noticed that I was in deeper meditation then with my eyes open, just sitting there mm-hmm. than I had been for two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. And the inner kind of self-manifesting koan that came to me was to, to relax the effort. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was just something that later on I found was a concept that you'll read about in different spiritual traditions around holding the effort and relaxation evenly. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, that, that really has been an important teaching for me, that I, one of the most potent inner teachings that have come that when, when I'm practicing is that I, I'm, one, keeping the connection to that practice in an earnest way, like what is the quality of my attention and concentration in the practice, mm-hmm. um, but but also remaining soft and relaxed and receptive, mm-hmm. right. rather than trying to kind of bull you know forward. So when we think about <coughs> the idea of how you know it took you a little while to kind of be able to, to sit up and do meditation, and you kind of wanted to go away because you were a wandering soul. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the reason I'm I'm curious about this from your perspective is. Um, uh, I've always personally been a very fixed, rigid person mm. to my detriment. But for example, like when it comes to traveling, someone wanted me to go to uh, uh, to Malai with them. Mm-hmm. I said, "Fine, I'll go as long as we get in and we get back out. None of this backpacking around India and getting like malaria and <laughs> food poisoning. <laughs> Probably get yeah. it anyway." But uh, <clears throat> so I, I've had numerous uh, students and people that I've worked with that they seem sincere. Like they want to learn, um, and they've even told me personally that they look at me as like a teacher figure, but they don't. They 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 kind of come and they go, or they'll come in and they'll say, "I want to learn," and I'll, I'll try to explain to them, "Okay, well these are the things to do," and so on. But then it's like they disappear, and then they. Uh, my question to you is: For you, 
Did you finally just overcome that? Is it something that needs to be overcome? Or I, I mean, yeah, the, the the range of aspirins varies so much. Mm-hmm. You know, when you you know when the yoga sutras they talk about mild. Mild intensity, you know, mild desire, mild intensity, mild desire, moderate intensity, and so on. And there's very few people that have kind of moderate to high desire and tendencies to practice. And and and, and for me, it's always kind of waxed and waned based on my life. You but you know? stayed with it. Though. I stayed with it. Yeah, and and I stayed with it even when I wasn't staying with it. In the sense when when the proverbial shit hits the fan in life and practice can sometimes take a back seat to just dealing with the day-to-day. I found that living life in the world as a yogi has allowed me to maintain my practice even when my formal practice wanes. Mm And I, I and I at first that would have been a cop out for me because I didn't have the I didn't really ha- I hadn't been vetted by life mm-hmm. yeah the certain gr- you know joys and woes of everything that go on and all of the grief and the loss and the aging process and and and, and so it, that's why I always say I'm always reorienting my orientating myself to my practice and there have been times where formal practice was was not as strong but my 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 own psychological inner work was strong mm-hmm. and then when i'd come back to the practice i would even be stronger for it mm-hmm. i had more tolerance for a lot of the aspects of myself that only life could suss out right, right. and and so you know, and, and a story comes to mind that I think speaks to this. There was a really great yogi from from India, from Gujarat, I believe, uh, Dion Yogi. And I was associated with Dion Yogi's tradition through Anandima in my, um, my the, um, it, it's about a decade ago. And um, that was a, a piece in the mosaic of my own tapestry. They were part of the same spiritual tradition that I'm from in India, but different, you know, d- different lineage. <clears throat> so, Dion Yogi came to this country at 99 years old. Mm-hmm. He traveled for four years all around the United States with his two close disciples, uh, Anandima and Dilipji Patak. And, um, and in traveling around the country, they were set up to do, um, Dion Yogi was set up to do meditation and Shaktipat initiations everywhere he'd go. Mm-hmm. Because <clears throat> it was a Kundalini Mahayoga Raj Yoga tradition, so he did Shaktipat, and Dhyan Yogi had lived a life of obscurity in a lot of ways, and he wasn't wanting to make it big. The only reason why he was here at that age, and he was pretty healthy, he could still do headstands and still walk vigorously. He used to say, "Walk with, walk with me, but don't try to keep up with me." He would just like, and he walked in wooden sandals, carouse, you know. <clears throat> so, but he would he he would say that even if one person shows up, then his mission is complete right. for that particular. And and you know, so a a, a good student is kind of like. Um, a good student, I wouldn't say good students are rare, but students that take a, a particular knowledge like yoga or like in my case Ayurveda, um, you know, out of maybe two dozen students, maybe a few of them will continue onward to really practice Ayurveda and get out there and not just helping family and friends which is or themselves, which ultimately is what I would hope, but maybe get into practice where they're helping others in the community and, and, and making it a part of their profession. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so 
whatever way, you know, the, the, the water, I, I would say the life water of that teaching of yoga seeps into their life. It may be something that comes later, mm-hmm. you know, in their life. Right. And, you know, f- for me, it came early because I really wanted it. But then there was this whole, and I thought I wanted to be a sadhu and a monk. And I even was ordained as a monk and spent a few years doing that. But I had no idea the worldly life that awaited me. Mm-hmm. And other people, they go through life just kind of peripherally associated with yoga. And then as they get older, mm. that makes they, sense. They, you know, especially young people. Robert Bly used to say, you know, Robert Bly. Robert Bly, the poet and mythopoetic author and teacher, uh, he used to say studying philosophy too early in life wasn't healthy. <laughs> right. And, 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 you know, I think, well, you know, if you're inclined to, like Ramana would say, if, you were, if you're meant to do it, you're going to do it. Like, you're, if you're meant to follow Gandhi, you're going to be following Gandhi. You're not going to be sitting here at my feet asking, should I follow Gandhi? <laughs> right. And, and, you know, <clears throat> like Babaji letting me go eventually once I knew. Right. And, you know, so yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think that it's... It's, it's just one of those things that will come as it comes. Well, it, 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 it just this whole conversation again reminded me of uh, you know one of the things Roy always used to say to me was um, uh, you know when I would travel and, and teach at Unity churches or when we had the Center Nashville, he'd always say almost all the time he said, "Remember, you're doing this as karma yogi or as karma yoga. Yes. That's it." Yeah. He's like, don't have any expectations yeah, about yeah. what happens after that. You yeah. are just doing it as karma yoga. So I guess it makes sense to just, well, that's how we're supposed to live our lives. It, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, it, and you, you know, we fake it till we make it because we want, we want to be successful at what we're doing in mm-hmm. life. <clears throat> in, one, in one teaching of karma yoga in a Bhagavad Gita class with Babaji, and I struggled with this idea of how do you remain deta- detached from the, like, how do you, how do you practice disinterested action? Sometimes translation of Sanskrit just doesn't do it for me. Right. Because there's multiple ways we can look at it. But disinterested action applies that you're not interested in the work that you're doing, mm-hmm. even though I know that's not what he meant. So Babaji clarified that. And he would say, karma yoga is done with great enthusiasm, knowing that you have absolutely no control over it. Right. And so, you know, that's why I say, you know, you throw yourself out there fully as much as you can. And you and you have, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I and, and I think that you've seen that you've seen that success with your with your Jyotish astrology, mm-hmm. with all the work and all of the recordings and teachings and everything. And and, you know, it's just taken years and right. years. It just takes time. It just takes years. And, 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 and you know, you, you, you gain a little bit. Of interest here and there and over time it just builds and builds and builds you know right right well I mean the whole idea of the the the, the, the karma yoga and, and what you know what your teacher mentioned it's like doing the work without the anxiety yeah you know it's like when I think about playing a garden like I love playing a garden <coughs> I love you know digging in the dirt and tilling it up and and planting the seeds and watching it grow but luckily, I have a grocery store down the road. Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. I can plan it, and I don't have to be anxious about the fact that... Yeah. So it's just doing it for its own yeah. sake, in a way. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not Hopis out on the mesa watering by hand, praying for rain. <laughs> right, right. People say, why do they put rattlesnakes in their mouth? It's like, because if it didn't rain, right, there's no corn. Mm-hmm. And that was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That, that the deep, deeper level of surrender and devotion there. Yeah, well, when you think about, you know, kind of switching gears again back to, to Mr. Davis, um, 
And we talked about what was one of the most important lessons you learned um, uh, from your first teacher. Uh, well, with Mr. Davis, is there anything that comes to mind that sticks out to you uh, that makes you think this was a very important piece that helped me along my spiritual path? Um, with Roy, yeah, specifically? Like, the, like your interaction with him or his <coughs> life or just how he represented... The first thing that comes to my mind... And there's many things, mm -hmm. you know, if I was to really think about it. But the, one of the first things that comes to me is Roy's um, authenticity mm -hmm. and his, his ability to be able to put what he had out there in an innovative and contemporary way, mm -hmm. in his own way. I mean, you know, I, I say contemporary in the kind of like 50s, 60s, 70s sense of contemporary. Right. right. When he was like in a heyday of like building his platform. Right. And, and taking pot shots for it, for being an innovator mm -hmm. in a sense. Taking teachings and rewriting him into, into his own. I wouldn't even say rewriting them, exploring them mm -hmm. from his own perspective, you know, uh, and finding his own meaning in those. Because we ultimately can read the same texts and sutras and trans. We we can we we can uh, interpret even Vedic teachings in so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And and so I like I, I I like how Roy presented ancient teachings in a modern way. He didn't come off as an orthodox Vedic teacher or with a Hindu coding on it. Mm -hmm. you, not, not that there's anything wrong with that. For some, that's their path and the way their that path. they... Yeah. yeah. But for Roy, I just liked his kind of um, no-nonsense and, and like kind of just ordinary way mm -hmm. of presenting. Mm -hmm. and, um, and for me, that, that was... A, a huge teaching because I came from a very um, I wouldn't say an orthodox way of studying yoga but Baba, Baba Haridas was he was a, um, a conservative yoga teacher that way if it wasn't in the scriptures mm -hmm. or it couldn't be linked back to the scriptures in some way it wasn't much of what he taught mm -hmm. he was very much to the book you know and that was his gift mm -hmm. you know he was a Sanskrit scholar and he was a philosopher, and um, and Roy, in his own way, in his own right, was too. But it was in the Western language, and so when I would read Roy's writings, it would speak to me just as much as anything out of a, a more classically written or traditionally written piece of work, right. like maybe coming out of Babaji's books. But all the wisdom was there, mm -hmm. and, and 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 using the English language to express it in a powerful way and in a direct way. And that helped me as an Ayurvedic teacher mm -hmm. because I wanted to present Ayurveda in a way that was both, you know, m clinical and medical for those going in that direction, but also really practical and day-to-day, -day, you know, just, just a real practical common sense and uh, way to 
incorporate these principles in our daily life. Not so they look like Hindu, Hindu, Hindu rituals of waking up in the morning and what you mantras you chant when you get out of bed and very specific routines and rituals that would go on in a Hindu household, all the karma kanda, taking care of family deities and the family puja and how you prepare your food and whether or not you drink chai or coffee or, or go to the bathroom squatting or sitting on a toilet seat. You know, it's like it doesn't matter. Like I removed a lot of that kind of what I call, I don't want to call them trappings, but the external right. aspects, you know, it, you know, Ayurvedic food isn't necessarily curried Indian cuisine, mm-hmm. you know, That's and, for sure. yeah, and and you know, <laughs> and so we, especially if it comes from a restaurant here in town. Yeah. No offense to the restaurants, but you know, um, the residue that sticks behind after eating a nice buffet at an Indian restaurant. But that that was a a big one for me is how to practice as well as teach the, this in a way that's just um, authentically me. Right. And, and that, that had, continues to be a journey in my own teaching style, mm-hmm. to just kind of own that, and especially in the culture that exists today where you, if you adopt too much of the traditional ways you're culturally appropriating, which I... Kind of, you know, that I, I don't worry. I can't stand Everyone that. in this room, yeah, accused yeah, of that. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> because you know, India is a mosaic and amalgam of so many different cultures. Right. Regardless to how you think about Indian history, we know that there's just so much sharing of information, mm-hmm. and spices, and trade that goes back a long time. And knowledge you know? too. Yeah. yeah, the Portuguese or the or, or Jews in the on the west coast of India and the big trade that was going on there. Or, you know, not you know, pre Christianity Christians like, you know, Thomas going into South India and and you know and and Mughal invasions and and you name it, you know. So it, it, I, I think of all of us as kind of a tapestry of humanity at this point. But if we adopt too much of those traditional ways, then then you know, in some ways, for me, anyways, that that didn't resonate. You know, earlier on, I was more into that, and then as time's gone on, I, I feel like I, I call it you thing in a sense of you know. Where am I within everything that I've learned up till now? Mm-hmm. Where is my practice within myself, with all my my memories and all my own individual tendencies and my own expression of life, mm-hmm. and 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 in seeing that my spiritual path really is kind of a journey of both of those things, mm-hmm. and uh, and 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 I, I saw that in, in Roy mm-hmm. a lot, you know, where uh, on one level. He was a spiritual teacher that was completely and 100% dedicated to that practice. And he remained Roy Mm -hmm. in his own way. And that's what I love about him. Like, you know, yeah, when I I think of Roy, it brings a smile to my face that way, you know, because he was just so much himself. Right. Well, that brings us to the end of our time together. So... Well, thanks good. for ending on that note. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for having me. This is this has been uh, great. Yeah, and I'll yeah. Uh, I'll go ahead and I'll put your contact information again in the information section of the podcast. If you want to find your okay. books or find your website or practice or your your teaching uh, material, they can find that too. But I just want to say thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate mm-hmm. it. You're welcome. Thank you. Take care. Bye. 
This episode of the Kriya Yoga podcast was made possible by donations from Kriya Yoga apprenticeship students and supporters of our Patreon community at www.patreon.com forward slash Kriya Yoga.